year 2020. And the church is still acting like it's 1982. That's the year we were born. And ten years into this gig. We are doing our best to help the church into the future. We are iPhone pastors for a typewriter church. And this is the Millennial Pastors Podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Pastors Podcast. My name is Eric Parker. And I'm Courtney Reedman Parker, and this is episode two, where we're going to talk about ministry in the midst of a pandemic. Right, so this uh, pandemic thing happened in 2020 and kind of changed everything, and we hinted at a little bit, hinted at it a little bit last episode when we were talking about being millennial pastors and our first 10 years in ministry. But in the second 10 years of ministry that we've been doing over the past uh, seven months, there's been this global pandemic going on that really has changed just about everything that's uh, happening in the world and in the church. And one thing that we talked about is, where is the Albin Institute book for this moment? It's not on my bookshelf. Yeah, mine either. (laughs) So I guess it's a lot of what on earth is going on, or as I have written in my notes, what the hell is going on in terms of this uh, pandemic? Um. So we broke down this episode into a few different parts, just to give ourselves a little bit of structure and organization to the way we want to talk about this. So we thought we would start at the beginning of the pandemic, before we get into all that stuff about how to lead through chaos and how to do ministry and all the new stuff, maybe just to review where we have been on this pandemic journey and what it has done to us as churches, as, as Christians, as leaders in the church, pastors. And so, entitled Act One, Early Days, Leading from the Midst of Chaos. So what do you remember from the beginning of the pandemic? I guess it happened sometime in March, or do you remember anything about the coronavirus before that? Well, yeah, I mean, I remember it being talked about, and certainly colleagues and friends in the States, it was much farther up their radar than it certainly was for us, and then some colleagues on the West Coast. I think for us here in Manitoba specifically, we didn't have cases of COVID until well into March. And so it really seemed like something that was happening out there rather than something that we needed to be preparing for. In a way, it was like hearing about a hurricane happening, right? You know it's serious, but hurricane we don't have hurricanes, so why They don't have hurricanes on the prairies. Why so. would we why would we be preparing for something that's not happening here? I remember the the first time that I really noticed that it was something 
uh, important happening in the world was actually on our very last uh, trip away from Winnipeg. We had gone to Canmore, Alberta, which is kind of like just outside of Banff. So just, you know, world famous Banff. And Canmore is the town just outside. Really nice place to go. All the locals go there because it's just outside the national park and not as expensive, but the same beautiful mountains. So there's a little uh, little tip for anybody that's going traveling, but not anytime soon. Today's episode is brought to you by the <laughs> MNO Synod and also Tourism Alberta. <laughs> right. So we were in Canmore. We were at the Alberta Synod uh, Pastor Study Conference. And I remember watching the news in a hotel room and they kept on talking about the novel coronavirus and there were cases happening. This was the end of January. There are cases happening, I think the first in, in British Columbia and there was some in the United States that had already appeared by that point. Yeah. And then it was sort of just, you know, kind of in the news here and there, we were hearing about some cases kind of reminded me of SARS. I sort of missed the SARS uh outbreak as well even though canada was the the place that had the most deaths outside of um outside of china but as we were in western i was in western canada you were in western canada far away from toronto it just seemed like you know this university didn't really care let's not really pay attention to that kind of stuff like a hurricane (laughs) did not seem applicable right seemed too far away serious but not something that we would need to be planning or preparing for. Right. And I remember thinking that this novel coronavirus was just sort of like any other strange virus the news reports on from time to time, bird flu, SARS, like these things that, you know, seem important and serious, but never really come to where we are. Cause you know, this is Canada and everybody's nice and nothing bad ever happens here. And, and so <laughs> I wasn't really, that concerned about it, but it kept on, kept on coming up in the news. It kept on coming up, started coming up on the um, social media news feeds. And then it was in March, the first couple of weeks of March, things started to get pretty serious. And we all of a sudden started talking about adapting and changing the way we were going to do worship. And at that time, we were going to stop shaking hands. We were going to stop standing. No, we weren't standing. We were still standing close to one another. Oh, yeah. But it was the the direct hand-to-hand touch fear that we were going to somehow transmit the virus by touching one another. So we stopped doing handshakes. We stopped. We did elbow bumps. We did all these sort Stop of... Stop sharing the peace. Stop <laughs> passing the offering plate. And I remember because it was the beginning of Lent, and I had just started a new call in January, and so we had just started into their Lenten practice of yearly Holden evening prayer services and gathering before worship with a soup and bread supper and following, I think we only had one service? Yeah, you only had one. I had two. I had the second one, second week. And it was sort of the awkward thing of we probably shouldn't be sharing a communal meal because we'd be touching the same stuff. But but I know that our church, we did do it. And then it was, I believe it was March 13th. Well, no, March 11th. I was watching 
my beloved Edmonton Oilers uh, play a hockey game. And during the game, the NBA announced that they were they were putting their season on pause. And that was sort of like the the thing that that began the snowball down the mountain of everything dropping, everything being canceled. And by March 13th, Friday, uh, the news here came in the Anglican Diocese, which is which works very closely along with our synod here. They announced that they were suspending all their in-person gatherings effective after the coming Sunday on the Monday. And I remember at that time I was still kind of a denier. I was in denial about it and thinking, this is ridiculous. This is what's uh, you know this is just like the flu what's going to happen here this is not going to affect anybody i was less in denial just so we're clear <laughs> and and i remember it took i took uh, our son to his swimming lessons that afternoon friday afternoon friday the 13th and we went i took him swimming at the swimming lessons at the y and it was like we had just gotten our first cases in Manitoba, our first case. And that same day, I think they announced one on the Thursday and three more that Friday. And there was like, I don't know, 20% of the attendance by that Friday. Almost nobody came to swimming lessons. I remember standing around thinking this is like surreal that nobody was coming. And then we had some company over, some Anglican, an Anglican priest. Over, right? A colleague of ours, yeah, partner came and we were talking about this stuff. And it was actually that conversation that sort of got me thinking a little bit more clearly about the the severity of uh the novel coronavirus. Was it even called COVID nineteen by that point? I can't remember. But uh that was when we started talking about what if somebody gets sick in our congregations and reality started to sink in and by that sunday we were doing things like we were we were doing as much as we knew like no no handshakes no um no touching no communion we didn't have communion scheduled anyways so it wasn't really much of an issue but lots of people weren't even, weren't doing the the wine at communion for yep. fear of transmitting the virus that way. And then I remember March 16th, my day off, our day off, I spent a lot of it extremely concerned and worried, panicking about making a decision about whether we should continue worshiping or not, whether we needed to cancel worship as a congregation because we hadn't yet received word from our bishop recommending or suggesting that we put a pause on in-person gatherings. And uh, it turned out it probably wouldn't have been much much of an issue because the, the public health authorities in our province made that decision basically for us. I think by the end of the week, they had reduced gathering sizes to 10 indoors by the next week. Pretty, pretty, it was pretty soon. Pretty soon after that. It went down from like 250 one day to 50 the next to 25, all the way down to 10 was the most you could have. And we were scrambling to figure out what we were going to do as a church when we couldn't gather. And so by March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, I think I sent 
think we received a letter from our all of our evangelical Lutheran Church in Canada bishops telling us that, that we should probably suspend our in-person gatherings. And then we I sent a pastor a letter to my congregation saying that we weren't going to have in-person church anymore and that it would, you know we would just all stay home for two or three weeks and probably by Easter be ready to just go back to normal. Well, I think we were also following what the Anglican diocese in our area had set out as well, which was this idea that it would last the suspension would last until Holy Week. Correct. And that if we sort of all did our part for three weeks, it would just pass over us and we would be. Just like the Passover, just like the angel of death. Would, exactly. Right. Would, we'd all point some blood on our doorposts and have some lamb shank, and then the angel of death would move along and we'd go back to and life we'd as go usual. Back, and we would go back. Yeah. As though nothing had happened. Right. And, we, and we'd all be so happy because we didn't see each other for three weeks, which felt like an eternity to consider not worshiping, not doing all the things we normally do as a church together at that point, to think about three weeks of no in-person church stuff. Felt like having a month of just, like, free holidays. Well, I remember one of my members coming out of worship and making a comment of, you know, in all of his years, and I don't want to guess how old he is, but I'm sure he's close to 90. Um, that he's never heard of worship being suspended before. So. One of your members who is a retired bishop. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was kind of a crazy time. And I've never written, I probably wrote more pastoral letters more communications to my congregation in that like early period than I have in the entire 10 years that preceded it. Oh, absolutely. I was joking that this was going to be my legacy at this call, right? That it was going to be a ministry of pastoral letters. Felt like the Apostle Paul writing all these letters to congregations in crisis. Yeah, it was. And I think you know, one of the things that we all commented on, there was no, this was certainly one of those things that they did not teach us how to do in seminary, but there was no manual on how to minister during a pandemic, except for 500 years ago, our beloved founder, Martin Luther, had written something about ministry during a plague, although it did not seem quite as applicable. It was, it was a great quote, but it was not that helpful in terms of managing 21st century people in a pandemic. And, uh, and so we uh, started trying to make all these decisions and, and um, working with congregational leaders. And I remember because there was, there's no sort of manual, no instruction manual on how to make these decisions. It was kind of a confusing and frustrating time because nobody knew at least as Lutherans, who was in charge, right? Was it the pastor? Was it the congregational council? Was it our bishops? Who actually had the authority to tell us to 
make these decisions, whether to have worship or not, whether to just make modifications like no communion. I remember that was one of the things early on, stop shaking hands, stop having communion. And lots of us thought, oh, we could, but we can still gather, we can still do worship as normal. And we had colleagues that were sort of just, you know, putting their heads in the sand and thinking that thinking that they were going to keep on going and and uh, continue on with uh, their gatherings and their ministry. And still others who had suspended gatherings earlier, right? Yeah. As soon as the 15th, which from our perspective still seemed like a really big step. Now looking back, it doesn't, but at the time it seemed like such a big deal. And I, and I wonder if for us, especially because we work not only in our synod, but collegially with so many Anglicans and a number of our good friends and colleagues are Lutheran, but serving Anglican congregations. And so hear what their, what their bishops offices are putting out in terms of guidelines and protocols it provides so much consistency for congregations and for leaders it provides framework and i think it provides backup as a congregational pastor to know that you're not alone in the decisions that you're making that there's that there's somebody else who is helping lead and guide and is ultimately taking responsibility for the decisions that are being made and how ministry and life together is being shaped and formed, which in this time of nobody really knows the answer is helpful to have to go on. It really revealed the dynamic of Lutheran polity where everybody's in charge and no one's in charge or everyone has a say, but no one gets the final say, right? That um, congregational councils, pastors, bishops all get to give input on these decisions for Lutherans, but no one actually sort of the buck stops here. Actually, I, I think for most Lutherans, nobody wants the buck to stop at their, their desk but rather are hoping that someone else will make the decision for them or for us. And that was, yeah, the Anglicans with the bishops sort of having that final authority and knowing that they had to make that final authority. You could tell with the way that they released their statements on suspending gatherings that it really came from a place of concern and knowing that uh, the Anglicans tend to have a lot of elderly members that I'm sure the bishops were imagining you know, that time it was an old person's disease, the novel coronavirus or COVID-19. And it was, um, you know, they were worried about all these 80 and 90 year olds who are faithfully coming to Anglican churches and didn't want to, any of them to get sick or to die. And you could really, I could really tell in the, in the statements that were coming from the Anglican bishops and Lutheran bishops, similar, but there was also, I found a little bit more hesitancy to be the ones to tell us to stop gathering. And what was interesting, I could find with my congregation, there was a desire to have that 
that recommendation come pretty strongly from elsewhere. Because, you know, what do nobody, nobody really had a handle on how to make the decision. How do you make the decision? You know, as a congregational council, I think lots of times people feel ill-equipped to make most decisions about what light bulbs to buy and what hymns to pick and what wine to use for communion, let alone should we stop our operations during a global pandemic. Yeah, it's beyond what most of us have had to consider before. Recognizing none of our bishops have had to consider this either, but that it does help to have that backing and to hear the same care and concern being echoed by a denominational representative by the national church to really name that this isn't just one congregation making this decision, but we're all making these decisions and we're all acting with the care and concern for the entire body of Christ as we go about deciding how and what and when to do what what we're doing. Yeah. One of the one of the things that I noticed early on in the uh the early days, just after we had decided to stop gathering, that <laughs> this feeling that I had for a lot of my ministry of being sort of chicken little and and sounding the alarm of change and crisis and and not so much, you know, like the church is burning down, but there's there's a need for change, a need for us to recognize that that the world has changed, that pretty early on this pandemic, it sort of made everybody get on the same page in terms of, hey, the church is in trouble. There's like something we need to do and we need to all act. And that was almost refreshing um, as a pastor to finally, after feeling like I've been trying to beat people over the head with it for a decade, that, hey, there's like, we need to, we need to adapt and change and do things differently that finally people were kind of awake to the fact that they need, we needed to recognize the world had changed what we do and how we operate. Even if it was for just, you know, three weeks of a global pandemic at the time, I had, I remember having the sense that I was sort of feeling like, I hope that people can recognize, Hey, like this isn't just a crisis of pandemic. This is just, revealing the larger crisis that's been simmering under the surface for for years and years and years as churches. Yeah, and I think most people could get on board for a three-week experiment, right? We're going to pause, <laughs> yeah, and we're all going to stay at home because that's what we're being told is the safest thing for us to do, and we're watching what other countries are doing. And so at that point in time, South Korea had just had a major outbreak and had a and had done a lockdown for three weeks and we're sort of seeing case numbers come down. And I think that was a lot of people's thinking, right? Well if we just do what South Korea did and we just go home and we stay there and we and we minimize the amount that we go out um and we sort of follow follow the rules we will be able to come out in three weeks time and 
We'll have Easter. We'll, we'll have Easter. Come out of our and tombs just, and have Easter. And just think of what a celebration Easter will be this year, right? I remember saying that myself many times. Yeah, me too. And I, I hung on to that Easter hope well into the season of Easter. Um, <laughs> I think it's different, though. The three weeks ended and just kept going. And so these pieces that we were excited about or willing to try or these adaptations that we thought, well, you know, I can, I can live stream worship and I can do some sort of meditation in the midweek and we'll do hold an evening prayer service from our living room after the kids go to bed instead of being at church doing it after soup and and bun supper but as the weeks went on and the weeks turned to months some of that excitement or the novelty or the refreshing parts of this thing that is happening that is revealing this reality is also exhausting yeah sounds like we're ready to get to act two of our our pandemic ministry uh, uh, episode. But first, a word from our sponsors. The Millennial Pastors Podcast is made possible by a generous grant from the Manitoba Northwestern Ontario Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Canada. Manitoba Northwestern Ontario Synod, or MNO Synod, is one of five synods of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Canada, the ELCIC. The MNO Synod covers 60 congregations in Manitoba and Northwestern Ontario, from Brandon, Manitoba in the west, to Thunder Bay, Ontario in the east, and from Morris near the U.S. border to Thompson, Manitoba, bordering on Canada's north. The MNO Synod has a baptized membership of 17,000 people headquartered, headquartered in Winnipeg, Manitoba. The Synod serves congregations through the ministry of the Bishop's Office and working in areas of youth and young adult ministry, missions, outdoor ministry, social justice, ecumenical relations, stewardship, and guiding ordained ministers and pastors through call processes. The MNO Synod can be found online at mnosynod.org and on Facebook and Instagram. Check them out if you want to find a congregation in the MNO or if you want to know more about their work. And I hear if you call the Synod office, you can just talk to our bishop, Jason Zinko. So, Act Two of Pandemic Ministry, and I entitled this one, We All Became Televangelists, and It Was Awesome. So, you already sort of hinted at some of the things that we started doing right away, and most of that was most churches, I think, or a lot of churches, decided to move their services online in some fashion or format to live stream or pre-record and upload services to Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo. 
Twitch, whatever streaming service fit their fancy at the time. And uh, I remember I, so the first Sunday I did, it was actually our last in-person Sunday. I just um, got a small little tripod, or maybe we had a little phone tripod. I put it in the front pew of the church, turned on our Facebook page, and started live streaming the service with terrible sound. And the, the camera angle was also not very good. I don't think it showed the whole front of the the church. Um, amateur. It was very amateurish. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but that was the beginning. And I, and people watched because we, that, that sort of last in-person Sunday, the, again, like swimming lessons when there's like 20% of the swimming uh, people there, the service only had maybe 30 and we regularly get, you know, two or three times that for Sunday morning worship, especially in Lent and close to Easter. That's a pretty high time in the church. So we're averaging much higher attendance and, you know, 30 people came and showed up, but a lot of people watched online. They complained about the sound, <laughs> couldn't hear what I was saying, but they watched online and, and that be, that has become and is the way that we have been worshiping ever since online. And uh, I think it was kind of exciting at first. There was a lot of interest. People were figuring out these new and dynamic ways to do church, to watch church online. There was the excitement about, you know, being able to watch in your pajamas and from the comfort of your home. We were all pretty new and fresh to the idea of being home all the time. And so there was this this energy around church online. And what was interesting, it was something that was always in the back of my mind to do, to live stream church, but I just never got around to it, you know, which is sort of funny considering that, you know, we have the I have this blog and I try to maintain a pretty active online presence. But um but just hadn't bothered to do something as simple as put our services online and make them accessible to uh, people who either can't get to church or who can't get to church at 10.30 to 11.30 on Sunday morning for whatever reason. For people who have never been to church and the idea of going into a church is frankly terrifying. Right. <laughs> yeah. And most, and I mean, it's sort of shocking that most churches you can find online before that were like, big mega churches or there was a few pastors live streaming from their phones but there really wasn't you know most churches the best you had was some out of date website to get information about or some twitter account that hadn't tweeted in 3 years or a facebook page that last updated um something with a with a 4 year old confirmation picture or something like that and you know, just we just had not really developed or cultivated online presences. There was always afterthoughts. It was always something you did. You passed off to some volunteer or something the pastor tried to keep up with in their spare time, or some some person who was good with computers, but maybe didn't know actually what to put for content. And and so online, we all of a sudden had to actually move online. We were forced to move online. And I know for some of our colleagues, it's been, it was and is difficult. And for others, it was, you know, a natural step and a natural move and a recognition that 
this move online is not going to end. It's not a temporary or transitional space, but it is something that's going to continue uh, after we are all back worshiping sort of as normal whenever that might happen. But I remember it wasn't easy at first. There was a lot of flubs and mistakes and a few sideways videos that were uploaded, sideways live streams. Sideways, no sound. No sound live streams. Do you remember the first time we did Hold an Evening Prayer live streamed? Yeah. And we got through the whole service and went to shut off the live stream and realized in the comments that there'd been no sound. And I think we were sideways. Yeah, it was sort of like we were following the development of uh, the literal historical development of TV. We're doing... We're doing silent films first and then moving to talkies. <laughs> but people were so gracious about it, right? I mean, that was the thing that I took away from it was people stayed. People watched a whole silent hold an <laughs> evening prayer. Sideways, silent, hold an evening prayer. They watched the whole thing. And then did it again when yeah. we restarted the live stream and yeah sorted ourselves out and made some joke about how this is how the world seems right now is sideways and you're not really sure what's going on sometimes you can't hear what's happening yeah you know i mean it was uh people were sort of ready to be we were there's a spirit of togetherness that was going along like we're in this together we're all working together and it, and it, it transcended to church and people were willing to be fairly forgiving but also interested and since we're all stuck at home and sports had had just disappeared and a lot of the new fresh content that we were used to was gone that church was something that was providing something new and fresh and something pandemic related at that time when everything else that we saw was news that was the only other thing that was sort of current was news and it usually was kind of dark that church in that early those early days was hopefully a little bit of light and a little bit of hope uh, in a pretty dark world. Um, and certainly one of the things that I noticed is that even though people couldn't gather, our need for community wasn't being met in the way that we are used to it. Our spiritual needs to hear the good news, to hear the gospel, that was being offered and met. And I, and I think a lot of people out there, a lot of colleagues, a lot of congregations, I mean, we actually had a very clear message of the gospel and good news to give people, right? Because we had a, a shared, identifiable crisis and problem that the good news of Jesus was actually something direct and tangible that could be spoken about and given for. So I think it was a, it was a time to for the gospel to sort of be out there. I mean, my, our Easter Sunday service had almost like a thousand people watch it on Facebook, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think too, we can all identify with, with the trouble that we identify in this pandemic and then to be able to name what the hope is in the midst of that. Whereas oftentimes, especially in congregational ministry, naming some of those places or things that are 
keeping us from being together or keeping us from seeing where God is at work, they're harder to name. Sometimes they're harder to name because we can't pinpoint what they are. But I think most of the time they're harder. And this goes back to the last episode because because sometimes we're at a different place than where our people are. And so, like you were saying at the beginning of this episode, right? Well, I've been sort of pointing to this crisis for a while and feel like Chicken Little and people are saying, oh no, 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 pastor, there's no problem here. And then a global pandemic happens and everybody says like, oh, there's a problem and churches might close. No, no, there will for sure be churches that do not that do not survive this this time period, right? And so because we have the freedom to articulate the reality of this without having to sugarcoat it, right? Without having to pretend it's something something different. I think that also allows us to name God's action in the midst of this in a much clearer way that people are also able to see and hear in in a way that that maybe is harder when when we don't see or want to see the reality that's in front of us. Yeah, I mean I I noticed pretty quickly that my own preaching and sense of of the gospel and 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 what the good news was for became a lot sharper and clearer. And I I didn't even really realize how maybe um not sharp, <laughs> blunt it was before, and how my own preaching had lost some of the urgency. You know, you, you preach about sort of the need for change for for ten years, and at some point you get a little bit uh, tired of it. And it's and and especially in you know the pre-pandemic world, it was it was this vague, amorphous sort of thing that the church needed to be, but it was hard to articulate. And what the pandemic has done is really accelerated that need for change, a lot of the stressors that were on us have been accelerated. And so it, it, really, it really has become clear to me, you know, what is the gospel saying to us in this time? What's the good news for us? What does new life look like? What does resurrection look like? Because um, death is easier to see. I think resurrection is maybe also easier to see in this time. And, uh, and so, you know, the... The hearing the gospel, preaching the gospel, I think has been in some ways easier during this this pandemic time. And and it's also, I think, um, made it clear that online ministry is here to stay. It's going to keep on. It's going to keep on going after the pandemic. That this move online is not just temporary, but it's gonna, it's going to, um, it's going to stay. And it's really opened doors for churches. That one of the funny things that that started back in March and it's still ongoing now in September. That people, I can, you can see people on Facebook, friends, they're watching church across the time zones in Canada. I mean, we are a small. Lutheran Church in Canada, so we often kind of know each other, even though we're a big country. And so people start 
church in the Eastern time zone and they sort of make their way through for two or three hours Sunday morning, watching different services, connecting with different people. And it's kind of neat to see these church across the time zones, how geography has become less of a limitation as it has been for, you know, I think there was a, a lean into being hyper local as congregations before, like really getting to know your neighborhood. And certainly that's still important. But there's also this other dynamic that we can now transcend borders, transcend geographical limitations. And we can even be on demand, right? We're church on demand all of a sudden that that most people have started watching at least our services after the fact. Like there's a a, a hardcore group that shows up at 1030 every Sunday morning to watch the premiere, the live premiere of worship. But then there's a whole bunch of other people who are watching after that and, you know, watching throughout all of Sunday, watching later on in the day, even watching Monday, Tuesday, throughout the week. They're coming in and worshiping in that way uh, online and connecting with the, with the community, even if it isn't necessarily at the, at the same time. And then the other thing that is, I noticed that we started as churches is we started this thing called Zoom. Are you Zoomed out yet? All Zoom all the time? <laughs> yes, Zoom. I, I feel like I have a love-hate relationship with Zoom. You know, I need these meetings. I, I like going to, I like seeing the people. I like talking to people. But it's never, it's never sort of enough, right? It's always sort of disappointing because it's ne- it's not a replacement for real, legitimate um, relationship and connection that you have during the meetings. You can't have sort of the aside to your neighbor, let's throw over a text message, and you don't have that sort of visiting that normally goes with meetings. But at the same time, I mean, how else are we going to see our colleagues? How else are we going to do our congregational council meetings? Like. There's, you know, we need to, we need to zoom. And so it's been an important uh, godsend at this time, I guess you could say. The one thing that my most favorite sort of zoom experience so far has been our youth group getting together and doing a zoom scavenger hunt, which was crazy fun that one, like, so one of the youth leaders would, would name an item that you had to go and find in your house and run back to your screen and show it on the screen. And so there's a little, anybody out there who wants like a youth event to do on Zoom, youth or a Zoom scavenger hunt is lots of fun and kind of crazy. And to see what kind of things people come up with, like find a hat, find a mug, find a deck of cards, you know, and people come running back to their computer after scouring their house for whatever item that, uh, that they're looking for. I'll say this about Zoom. Our synod has hosted a clergy Zoom weekly since the beginning of this pandemic. And I have never felt closer to our colleagues in our synod as I have over the past six months, in particular colleagues who live outside of of the Winnipeg area that we would typically only see at synod conventions or annual study conference and 
And I have really just come to appreciate that that time every week to connect and to pray together and to just hear how one another is doing and to to know that we're not alone in this time because we need we need each other. We've always needed each other, but I think now um that has provided an opportunity where you can't say um or you couldn't in the beginning say that you were had some other appointment because what what other appointment did you have and and so now it's become i think for a lot of people uh, a habit a good habit to be connecting in with colleagues yeah and you know what i i noticed too is i i guess i misspoke about some of the limitations of zoom because that particular meeting you know and it's probably the true in other cases that we've really used it to to share things that I don't think we would have normally shared in other ministerial meetings, in other meetings of colleagues, because of how intentional you are with who speaks and when somebody speaks, right? People don't generally talk over each other on Zoom just because it's intolerable. Um, and so people really get a chance to sort of to share, to say their piece. And if your intention is just sharing and hearing out people and you're not having some meeting where you need to get things done which is our our zoom or weekly meetings really is just for checking in with one another and then maybe talking about whatever is a pressing topic of the day that this intentionality of sharing has been really good and i really appreciated that part of the zoom meetings that having the opportunity to hear from people that we don't usually hear from and then also the opportunity to share without you know worrying that um people aren't interested or you know the regular interruptions sometimes that happen of in-person gatherings where where somebody else will chime in and all of a sudden your your important point gets derailed by somebody else's story that there's an intentionality to listening on zoom i guess that has been going along with that i don't know if that's probably everybody's experience with zoom but with this particular meeting i found that so so that leads pretty well into our our next act, right? Which is which is uh, to to begin with that online has started to get tiring, right? People are getting a little tired of online. I've noticed that they're not watching that the views for for worship have have been dwindling a little bit over the past few months. And so the big question has become, the next question becomes, should we start gathering in person, again, in person again, or shouldn't we? I think there are other reasons for that too, right? I mean, the beginning was all about flattening the curve. And at least for us here, we did a pretty good job initially at, at flattening the curve. And so then the sense of, remaining at home online started to become a challenge i think for some as other businesses started to open and as we were doing some other types of gathering types of activities um in and around the the communities that we live in right and so 
now it's not, well, everybody's home and nothing is open. And so, of course, we're going to be doing doing online ministry because that's the only option available to us. But I think for a lot of people, as soon as the option was available for in-person gatherings, the question started about, well, should we or shouldn't we? Mm-hmm. But we're not going to have that conversation today. We're going to save it for next time because we knew that this episode might take more than uh, might take more than one episode rather to have this conversation about pandemic ministry. We are going to wrap this episode up right now, and then we are going to come back to you next time with pandemic ministry uh, part two. So. Um, where can people find you if they want to follow you on uh, social media? You can find me on Twitter at Reedman Parker, on Instagram at C Reedman Parker, or on Facebook, both my personal page, Courtney Reedman Parker, or over at our congregational page, Messiah Lutheran Church Winnipeg. And you can find me online at uh, the Millennial Pastor Facebook page. You can find me on Twitter at Parker Eric. And on Instagram, I think it's the Millennial Pastor. I don't do that very much, but you can find me there if you want. And you can also find me uh, at my congregation's uh, social media stuff, uh, Sherwood Park Lutheran Church in Winnipeg, our Facebook page and also at surepark.ca, which is our webpage. The Millennial Pastors Podcast is made possible by a generous grant from the Manitoba Northwestern Ontario Synod of the ELCIC, whom you can find at mnosynod.org. The Millennial Pastors Podcast is written and produced by us, the Reverend Courtney Reedman Parker and the Reverend Eric Parker with our theme song provided by Lutheran Outdoor Ministry in Alberta and the North, and all other music provided by audionautics.com. This has been a couple of iPhone pastors for a typewriter church. We will see you on the other side. Bye for now.